Please take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 12. Uh, We are resuming our study of this glorious epistle of Paul. Uh, We're going to take it home to the end of chapter 16. But this morning we begin in Romans, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This is God's Word. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray again and ask him to help us as we study his word. Father, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. May we, by your grace, live in the light of that glorious truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of you have probably played or seen the game Jenga at some point in your life. You know then that in order to build the tower as tall as you can, it takes a light touch, right? You have to deal gently. Uh, To be sure, there are times perhaps where you have to, you know, sharply flick a block out of the the tower. Uh, But but usually uh, you you can't just roughly yank or push the blocks out of the tower or, or place them down on the top of the tower. Uh, it takes finesse, it takes skill, it takes uh, a deft sensitivity right, to each particular block in its particular setting in the tower. Well, the same was true of how the Apostle Paul approached helping people to change and calling people to change. Certainly there were times when he used his apostolic authority to order God's people to, to do things. But but more often than not, you hear Paul uh, use the language that you see here in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. The language of appeal and urge and exhort and admonish and beseech and implore. Just take one example. In the book of Philemon, uh, he writes to Philemon, he says, Though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. In the words of John Calvin, Paul knew that he could prevail more with the teachable in this way than in any other. And so this morning we listen to Paul's appeal to us. Unfortunately, though, this is a familiar passage to us. And therefore, as with anything familiar, it's possible that we miss things about it because we think we already understand it. We think we already know everything there is to know about it. And so we have to be careful. This morning, my prayer is that God's word would be fresh to you, that you would see wonderful things in this passage. And so to that end, I want us to consider the content of Paul's appeal to us under three heads. One is general and then two are specific. The the first is this, put the cart of obedience after the horse of Christ and the horse of the gospel. The second, be the priest that you are. And third, be a caterpillar and not a cuttlefish. What are we 
talking about. Let's dig in. First, put the cart of obedience after the gospel horse. Put the cart of obedience after the gospel horse. We typically use this phrase, don't we, in the negative. Don't put the cart before the horse. Right? Don't do things in the wrong order. Don't focus on the desired result before you focus on the motive power that causes those results. And that would certainly be an appropriate way to put it here in this passage. Don't skip over all the rich gospel truths that you've seen in chapters 1 to 11 and rush ahead to Paul's application of those truths in chapters 12 to 16. But I'm putting the phrase in the affirmative because that's how Paul is speaking about it here. Put the cart of obedience after the gospel horse. And I want us to emphasize to both the verb and the preposition in that sentence. Put the cart of obedience after the gospel horse and put the cart of obedience after the gospel horse. What am I talking about? Well, here in these final chapters of Romans, Paul is appealing to us that in light of all the rich gospel doctrine that you have heard, be changed by that truth. Be changed and transformed. He's exhorting us, knowing that, that it's possible to have all your theological I's and theological T's dotted and crossed, to have all your doctrine right. But if you don't live out your faith and obedience to God's law, if you don't walk in love for him and, and for your neighbor, if you still habitually live and speak and think like an unbeliever, then your faith is not saving faith. Your doctrine is useless. How does Paul, how does James put it? He says, faith without works is a dead faith. It is the faith of demons. It is a worthless faith. And think about it, you could have the strongest Clydesdale horse in your barn, but if he's not pulling a wagon, if he's not pulling a cart, what's the point? What's the point? Doctrine and duty, belief and behavior, creed and conduct, they must always go together. And so what does Paul do here in this letter? He does what he always does in his letters. Right after giving us the indicatives of the Christian life, that is what God has done for us, who we are in Jesus, he gives us the therefore. He gives us the imperatives. He tells us what we are to do, what we are to do, and what, how we are to be in light of those indicatives. Paul here is assuming and declaring that obedience is not optional for the Christian. You cannot have Jesus as Savior if you do not bow the knee to him as Lord, because Jesus rescues his people not just from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, from the practice of sin. If we believe the gospel, it will change us. And so this passage comes and, and right out the chute, it asks us, are you putting the cart of obedience after the gospel horse? Or are you merely growing in your knowledge, merely growing in your depth of, of knowledge of the doctrine, the truth of the gospel, but you're not living it out? But there's a second way I want us to ask that question, right? It's, it's, this passage is also coming to us and saying, are you putting the cart of obedience after the gospel horse? Are you putting the cart after the horse? You see, if the, if the first question about, about putting it challenges us and our temptation to lawlessness, then putting it this way, emphasizing the word after, challenges our temptation to legalism. 
Look how verse one begins. Paul says, not, I appeal to you, brothers. He doesn't just say, I appeal to you, I appeal to you. No, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, by God's compassionate concern over all of our misery, I appeal to you. You see, Paul appeals to a practical holiness in light of and built upon the foundation of the gospel theology that he has laid out for us in chapters 1 through 11. Because Paul knows that if you seek to live the Christian life before you understand what it means to be a Christian, then you are doomed to failure and frustration. It's like trying to to build a house without foundation. It's like trying to develop a technology without any understanding of the science that undergirds that technology. If the cart of obedience is not attached and following the gospel horse, that cart is going nowhere. Paul appealing to obey the Lord in view of his mercies, in response to his mercies. But what are some of those gospel mercies and compassions that Paul has unfolded for us. It's been some time since we were in this letter, so it's important that we think back to what we've already seen over the last months and years as we've been walking through Romans. Let me give you several of them. Remember that Paul has set forth for us in chapters 1 to 11, particularly in chapters 1 to 3, that God's grace is given to us in the face of our demerit. God gives grace to those who deserve none of it, who have earned none of it. We have sinned, all of us. We have merited nothing but the wrath of God, Paul says. None of us deserve salvation. But what does he say in chapter five? At the right time, when we were weak and helpless, when we were sinners, God sent his son to live and to die on the cross for our sins. Salvation is all of grace. Live. In the light of that grace, Paul is saying. But a second gospel truth we've seen in this book, that that God justifies the ungodly through faith alone. Chapters 3 to 5 make it abundantly clear that that any supposed good work or, or obedience that we might attempt can never justify us, can never make us righteous in God's sight. But thanks be to God, he has provided a righteousness outside of us through the obedience and the blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Jesus has satisfied the demands of the law and has borne on his own person, in his own body, on the cross, all the wrath of God against the sins of his people. And so this glorious truth reminds us that we don't have to obey the Lord in order to get him to accept us because he has already accepted us. We are already acceptable and beloved In Jesus, we are righteous in Jesus. He has imputed to us, he has credited to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. What a glorious foundation on which to build our own righteousness, our own obedience to the Lord, not because we want God to to, to think highly of us and to to accept us and we want to be righteous so God will, will say, yes, look how righteous you are. Because he's already declared us righteous in Jesus Christ. A third mercy of God that we've seen. In chapters 6 and 7, Paul has unfolded how, how the Lord God has united us to his son Jesus in his death and his resurrection. 
This is the foundation of the Christian life. We have died to sin. We've been freed from sin's power, Paul has told us. It no longer holds us as its slaves. We are now alive to God in Christ, alive to, to live for him, able to walk in newness of life, able to put sin to death by the Holy Spirit who has been poured out within our hearts. That's the foundation of, of our obedience. The foundation of, of living for the Lord is to know that the Spirit dwells within us, that we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Last, one last mercy that we see in those early chapters of Romans, God has predestined us to adoption as sons, to be conformed to the image of his Son. Again, this electing grace, as we've seen, is not based upon the man who wills or the man who runs or anything that we might do, but solely upon the mercy of God. And what does this tell us? But that if, if God has saved us by grace, if he has chosen us by grace, then nothing that we can do can separate us from our Father's love. If we are his children, we don't have to earn his love. He loves us freely. Even when we fail, even when we sin, even when we are foolish children. And because he loves us, because he has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son, by his spirit's power, we can walk in confidence, knowing that the Lord who began a good work in us will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. We can work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who is at work within us to will and to do for his good pleasure. Brothers and sisters, are these the motivations that impel you, that drive you as you seek to live a holy and a godly life? So often it is motivations of, of guilt, of shame, right? of trying to measure up, of trying to make up for the, the things you've done wrong in the past. Or, or perhaps it's the motivations of, of pride, of com competitiveness. I'm going to be better than that person. Those are the motivations that so often grip our hearts. And yet Paul here is saying, put the cart of obedience after the gospel horse. Let the gospel of grace, free grace, justifying grace, sanctifying grace, electing, predestinating, adopting grace. Let that be the realities that move you as you seek to love the Lord. John Calvin summarizes all of this so beautifully. He says, this exhortation teaches us that until men really apprehend how much they owe to the mercy of God, they will never with a right feeling worship him, nor be effectually stimulated to fear and obey him. Iron indeed must be the heart which is not kindled by the doctrine which has been laid down into love towards God. God whose kindness towards us it finds to have been so abound. Iron indeed must be that heart that does not see the glorious gospel of grace and desire to please the Lord. So that's the first thing Paul wants to say to us here. Put the card of obedience after the gospel horse. But now we get specific. And the second thing I want you to see from this passage is this. We are called to be the priest that we are. Be the priest that you already are. Look at the second half of verse 1. Paul appeals to us to present your bodies, he says, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
You know, under the old covenant, before Jesus died and rose again, there was a special, special priestly class of, of men among the people of God. One of the most important things they did was to offer animal sacrifices, to worship God by, by killing animals as a way of foreshadowing the death of Jesus that was to come. But on this side of the incarnation of Jesus, under the new covenant, right, the Bible tells us that every single believer in Jesus is a priest. It's not just the, the pastors who are priests. Right? You are a priest, the Bible says. And here, Paul calls you to act like one, to be a priest, to present your sacrifice to God. But what is your sacrifice? Well, you are. Specifically, your body is your sacrifice. Not, not to be killed, of course, for since Jesus has died, there is no more need of shedding of blood to pay the penalty for sin. No, as those who are alive from the dead in Jesus Christ, we present our bodies a living sacrifice. We've been saved by grace through faith to wholly devote ourselves to God, no longer living for yourself, but for his glory, no longer pleasing yourself, but pleasing the one who has lavished you with mercy. Just like the Israelites of old were to offer unblemished animals without defect, so the Lord here calls us to offer our bodies as holy sacrifices, set apart for his service and for his glory. Right? Whatever we do in our body, Paul is saying, we are to do it as those who have been devoted to Jesus Christ. Now, there is a sense in which Paul uses this word body as a synonym for the whole man, both body and soul. Notice that, that Paul, at the end of the verse, calls this offering of our bodies our spiritual worship. Now, he doesn't use the normal word for spiritual here. He uses a word that, that has the sense of logical, rational, reasonable. It certainly is implying that, that offering our bodies to God is the only logical response to his grace. But even more, it's highlighting the fact that our soul is engaged fully as we offer our body to the Lord. Now think about breathing and other bodily functions that are reflex actions, right? You don't have to consciously choose to breathe. Your body just does it, right? You live because your body does it. But that's not the way that this priestly offering works, is it? Paul is saying, no, it's, your, it's your, 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 your rational, spiritual worship. It's the worship that you give with your body, but you do it intentionally. You do it intelligently. You can't stick this priestly sacrifice on cruise control or ask ChatGPT to do it for you. You must do it. You must engage your heart, your will, your mind, your affections. And so it's spiritual worship and that it's not just external ritual. It's not just going through the motions. It's not just mouthing words, right? Paul wants us to, to be fully engaged in presenting our bodies and offering to the Lord. But though the word body really stands for the whole person, Paul uses that language of body very intentionally, very on purpose. For you see, the, the, the culture in which Paul lived, this Greco-Roman world, it had a very low view of the body. It saw the body as something to be freed from, right? That's the goal of life, to be freed from this prison house of the soul. And so that led to either indulging the body, because it doesn't matter what you do with your body, 
or, or to, to, to beating your body in extreme and a harsh asceticism because this body is bad. We want to get out of this body. But Christianity, as we see throughout the New Testament, has a very high view of the body. Right? Going all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, right? God has created us as embodied souls, good in his sight. We've been made to enjoy the physical pleasures of this world that God has made. The dissolution and death of the body is an abnormal result of sin. And the fullness of redemption is found in what? The redemption of the body, as Paul says in Romans 8. And therefore, the Christian life is an embodied life. Our bodies are members of Jesus Christ, temples of the Holy Spirit. We are not our own, Paul says. We've been bought with a price. And therefore, as he says in Romans chapter 6, we must fight to not let sin reign in our mortal bodies, to obey its lust. We, we do not offer the members of our bodies as, as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. But we offer the members of our body to God as instruments of righteousness for him and for his glory. And, and so when Paul here is saying to you, to be the priest that you are, to offer your body to him. What, what he is reminding you is that God cares how you use the members of your body, your eyes, your hands, your ears, your feet, your mouths, your stomachs. They belong to him. We live in a world where eyes wander and linger, but God calls you, his people, to make a covenant with your eyes that you might not look upon someone of the opposite sex with lust. We live in a culture, a hookup culture, where casual sex is just taken for granted. It's assumed. But God calls you, the people of God, to only join your body to your spouse. We live in a time when cussing is cool and accepted, where taking the Lord's name is so normal that it's even an acronym, right? OMG. And we think nothing of this often. Yet the Lord is clear. Do not take the name of the Lord in vain. Do not use your words and speak in an unwholesome and impure way, in a way that tears down. We're called as God's people to use our mouths for the Lord and for his glory. We live in a culture that eats and drinks to excess. But the Lord calls us to fill our stomachs with food and drink for his glory, for enjoyment, not for drunken escape. He calls us to labor with these hands that he's given us to provide for our own families and to have something to share with those in need. In all, he calls us to discipline our body, to make our body our slave. He uses this hard language because he wants it to be the slave of God. Lord, this is your body that you've given me, that you've joined to Jesus Christ. Help me to use it for you. So brothers and sisters, this is your priestly work. You are sitting in your priestly work. You are living in your priestly work to give the body that God has given to you every minute of every hour of every day to his service, to glorify him no matter what you do, as you eat, as you drink, as you work, as you play, as you study, as you travel, whatever it is that you do, you are to do it for him and for his glory. It is the worship that God calls you to do every day of your life. Think about it. We gather on the Lord's day for corporate worship, stated corporate worship, gathered corporate worship, according to God's word, but, but we gather together like this, why? In order to be equipped for the worship of the other six days. So often people 
think about corporate words and think, well, you know, I'll show up a couple times a month. I'll throw some money in the plate, right? And I can just sort of check the worship box. And they think nothing of worship the rest of the month. If that's your view of worship, if that's the, the view of how you live in the body, not only are you sadly mistaken, but you are deeply deceived. The Lord calls his people to be priests every day of our lives, to be the priests that we already are, to present our bodies to him in all things. Last, in this passage, Paul calls us to be a caterpillar, not a cuttlefish. Now, you've probably heard the saying attributed to Dwight L. Moody, the problem with a living sacrifice is it keeps crawling off the altar, right? We don't want to be sacrifices. And part of the reason for this, of course, is our indwelling sin, as Paul has opened up for us in Romans chapter 7. But it's also because we live in a world that is so alluring, that is so attractive. If Paul is appealing to us, the world is also appealing to us. And so what does Paul do? In verse 2, he unpacks our, our priestly consecration both negatively and positively. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We thought about this a little over the last week with our missions festival, when God takes you out of the world, when he calls you out of the world, he doesn't take you out of the world. He calls you out of the world, out of darkness, into his marvelous light, but he leaves you in the world. And in fact, he sends you into the world so that you might be salt and light and and impact the world for him and for his kingdom. But this mission is dangerous in part because the world is more evangelistic, more missional than you are. The world is seeking to shape you after its pattern like Plato, to to fill you into its mold like Jell-O. The world wants us to be like it. And because we are so prone to blend in to our surroundings, to conform our beliefs and our behaviors to those who are around us, Paul here appeals to us. He urges us to fight this temptation, to not be conformed to this evil age, to be on guard against the patterns of thinking and acting and living, the, 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 the patterns of feeling and loving and desiring, the ambitions, the plans, the fears, in a word, the worldview of the world, how it is seeking to, to change us. Maybe it's the people you're around. Maybe it's the music you listen to. Maybe it's the books you read. Maybe it's the, the things you watch. All of these things are seeking to get you to conform. Now, we typically think, don't we, of the chameleon as the animal most associated with conformity, with, with, with changing and blending in. But it's really the cuttlefish. I didn't know this. Did you know this? A cut, you don't even know what a cuttlefish is? Some of you do. A cuttlefish is sort of in the same family as the squid, the octopus. It's a mollusk, right? And it can change its appearance to match essentially anything underneath it and around it. Go Google it. It's amazing what a cuttlefish can do, but it is tragic. When a Christian acts like a cuttlefish, God calls us to be different by his grace, not to float with the current of the world, not to just float downstream, not to be wrapped up in the temporal, transient, temporary things, but to paddle upstream against the flow, to be orientated 
heavenward. To have our minds set on things above. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 7, we as believers are to be as those who use the world, but not as though we make full use of it. We know the, this world is passing away. And so rather than remaining like or becoming like the world around us, Paul calls us to be changed, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, to be ever increasingly conformed to Jesus's image. The Greek word for transform here is the source of our word metamorphosis. Now, of course, a caterpillar only goes through metamorphosis to become a butterfly once. But, but Paul here is speaking of, a, of an ongoing, a continual metamorphosis where we are ongoing, ch changing again and again, more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. God is changing our minds. He's renewing our minds, our hearts that begin to think and feel his thoughts after him. We begin to act and, and speak according to his revealed will in all situations. Notice what Paul says here, that, that, that this transformation leads us to be able to discern, to, to test, and to approve what God's will is. He's not talking about God's secret will, his, his hidden will, right, what's going to happen in 2024. He's talking about his revealed will, his will of command. It's like a chef who, who tests her soup until it's perfectly seasoned or like a jeweler who, who is able to appraise and to evaluate the purity of a diamond. So our minds are being transformed so that we can more and more discern and, and agree with and do the will of God in concrete situations, that we can learn what it means to obey in every situation in which we find ourselves. This is our calling. This is Paul's appeal to us. Don't be a, a cuttlefish. Be a caterpillar. Be someone who's changing, who's transforming into the beautiful image of your Savior. Don't be conformed to this world. But how do we do this? Right? How, how are we transformed? How do we become more and more like Jesus? Well, Paul tells us in another passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, he says, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image by, from glory unto glory. It's by beholding the glory of the Lord Jesus that you are made more and more like him. And where do we behold the glory of the Lord Jesus? But in the word of God and the sacraments of baptism, the Lord's Supper. As we spend time studying God's word, gathering together in corporate worship, we see the glory of our Savior by these outward and ordinary means of grace. We, we see all that he has done for us, all that he is. And we are made more and more like him. We're transformed into his image. We are enabled to, to be less entranced by the siren song of this world and more in love with the beauty of holiness. We see our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for us so that we might give ourselves for him. But we also see the glory of the Lord as we walk through trials, as we walk through suffering. We've just sung it, haven't we? Where the song, I asked the Lord, it says, these inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou may seek thy all in me. You see, when we suffer, when we go through Affliction and tribulation, 
the Lord through our suffering enables us to see that, that glory is not to be found here. Glory is to be found in the life to come. And so as we suffer, as we walk through trial, we see the glory that awaits us, the glory that will be revealed to us when Jesus Christ comes again. And that sight of his glory, the glory that he shares with us, it transforms us. It weans our hearts off of this world so that we might long for the world to come. Brothers and sisters, I pray that this appeal by the Apostle Paul would grip your hearts, right? that you would put the cart of obedience after the gospel horse, that you would be the priest that you are, that you would refuse to be a cuttlefish, be a caterpillar, change, transform according to the word of God, according to your knowledge of the beauty, the splendor, the glory of our Savior. May God make it so. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that you've given to us this text Lord, though familiar, may it freshly impact us this morning. Lord, we desire to be those who would live for you in, in every thought, every word, every deed. Lord, we pray that your spirit would come and would help us because we cannot do any of what we've just looked at in our own strength or power. Lord, we ask that you would make us more like Jesus. Show us his glory, we pray. In his name we ask it. Amen.